0: Hi, and welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investor's weekly podcast radio show. Now, one of this week's big topics is superannuation, after the Productivity Commission came out with its draft report on how it should be fixed, that is, with more competition. Today, I'm talking to Karen Chester, the Productivity Commissioner, who wrote the report, so you can hear directly from her about what she's on about. I also talked to the CEO of the medium-sized Superfund of the Year, Leanne Turner of MTWA Super. We're also looking into what's going on in Europe with European analyst at Platinum Asset Management, Nick Dvornak, and we discover a new index of companies with employee ownership schemes that's handsomely outperforming the ASX 200. But first, Karen Chester of the Productivity Commission. Now, they were asked to investigate Australia's superannuation system and come up with recommendations to make it more efficient and competitive. Now, you'll be aware that I've got some pretty strong views about super myself, but this interview is not about me or an argument. It's about getting a clear explanation from Karen about her ideas. First, what did the government ask the Commission to do?
1: We're halfway through the way of doing a three-stage review of the superannuation system, and this is stage two. Stage one was how would you go about asking the $2 trillion question, is the Australian super system competitive and efficient? So setting up the framework. Stage two, which is the one that we're working on at the moment, I like to think of as the top draw inquiry. If we were to find, when we get to stage three, that the current superannuation system is not competitive and efficient, and in particular in the default sector, what could you do to improve its competitiveness? So the terms of reference asked us to come up with new workable ways to inject healthy competition um, into the default market and to improve uh, outcomes for members. So that's the current inquiry. And then stage three, which will commence in the latter half of this year, once my super is fully rolled out, we'll be actually doing what I call the full Monty review, assessing the competitiveness and efficiency of the super system. And it's at that stage that we will assess the current default arrangements. At the moment, we're just coming up with some workable alternative new options as how you could allocate default. So when we get to stage three, we'll review the overall competitiveness and efficiency, we'll look at the current default arrangements in a similar way to we assess the relative merits of the, the four new options we've identified, and then we can integrate the work of stage two when we get to stage three.
0: So you haven't yet made a kind of determination as to whether the default system as it currently is actually works?
1: So we haven't done a comprehensive review yet of the current default arrangements. We'll be doing that in stage three. The reason we were prompted to do stage two early was for two reasons. Firstly, David Murray, when he did the financial system inquiry, formed a view. It was a preliminary view that there was um, a distinct lack of competition or competitive dynamic or tension in the default sector. He He felt that there was competitive tension in the choice sector because of SMSF self-managed super funds, but he he um, he formed an initial view that there was an absence of that competitive dynamic in the default sector for two reasons, the way the current default arrangements work, but secondly, when he looked at what's called the operational efficiency of the system, i.e. fees and costs, where he benchmarked them internationally and found that they were much higher. So... That's why we're looking at what might be some new workable ways of injecting that healthy competition into the default sector at this stage. So that we've done all that preliminary work, and if we need to, we'll then draw upon it in stage three. You've got what
0: you call a baseline point or reference point of no default. Can you explain what you mean by baseline? Does that mean that you think there should be no default?
1: So our baseline of no default was us looking to get a simple and objective Baseline against which to compare other default models. And the reason being is we're, we're 25 years down the track from when superannuation, compulsory superannuation, was introduced across all working Australians. And at that time there was a view that default was needed. And indeed, in our current draft report, we, we recognise that need. But it's important, given we're 25 years down the track and we're dealing with a very different modern um, workforce, that we kind of go back to basics and say, what would be the problems in today's labour market or today's workforce if we didn't have default? And then, that's the best benchmark against which to assess the new options. So, we say in our report that because of, um, you know, complexity, cognitive biases and compulsion, the three C's of superannuation, you would you would more more than likely need some form of default arrangement. But we're trying to come up with new modern-day ways of coming up with better default arrangements um, against the benchmark of no defaults. So instead of it being current systems better than, than your new workable options, it's allowed us to go back to basics and say, what are the problems of no default and which model, which option is best at addressing those problems? And so that's how we've assessed... Um, The four options that we've identified against the baseline. And we'll do the same in stage three when we look at the current default arrangements. We'll use exactly the same framework of analysis, Alan. We'll compare the current default arrangements to a baseline of no default and then against the assessment criteria and with a view to an overall sense of the competitiveness and efficiency of the system.
0: Can you say at this stage whether it's possible at the end of this process that you'll recommend no default? Is that possible?
1: No, we've already ruled that out in our current draft report. We've said that the baseline is not an option. It is not one of our four options.
0: So you've got the four options. Do you have a preference yet?
1: No, Alan, and and we're really at the stage now where we've identified in our draft report what are the relative merits of the four options. They all beat the baseline. The two things we want the options to be able to do now are they've got to beat the baseline of no default and they've got to be workable. And we feel the four that we've come up with are very workable. Indeed, the the mechanisms that we're using to identify what are the top-performing funds are very well-tested mechanisms for choosing best in show in lots of complex markets, both here in Australia and, and internationally. I guess the other thing that's really driving everything is we're trying to put the members' interest back into focus. We're completely agnostic around who the super fund should be. All that we're interested in is coming up with a way of allocating default and allocating it once. Now, if you're going to allocate default once, you need to make sure that it's to a top-performing default product because we're looking at two-thirds of the current um, membership of superannuation are in default products. So we're looking at two-thirds of current workers are in default products. We need to make sure we default them once so we have a circuit break and we get rid of the problem of the proliferation of duplicate accounts, which we know is costing members greatly. But if we're going to default them once, we need to make sure that it's to a top-performing product.
0: You don't mean to default once into a common product. You mean default once into a competitive product.
1: That's right. So they default once, and unless they choose then to move to another product, they're in that product for their entire work life. So we circuit break immediately probably the most egregious systemic failure of the current default arrangements, we circuit break and get rid of multiple accounts, unintended multiple accounts, which is costing... Members, a lot of money at the moment. We know from initial work by the Murray Inquiry that it's costing them at least $25,000 at retirement. And for some of these workers, that's a lot of money. And we also know that it's costing them, and these are Productivity Commission estimates that we've put in our draft report, it's costing them about $150 million annually in terms of additional admin fees and duplicate insurance premiums.
0: It seems to me to be an absolute no-brainer that people shouldn't be defaulted into different funds every time they change jobs. It's mad.
1: Well... 40% of Australia's workers today are, Alan. 40%. For young workers, for many, it's unintended. They don't even know about it.
0: That's probably one of the easiest recommendations the Productivity Commission's ever come up with.
1: (laughs) It is, but it then puts the onus to make sure if we're going to default a member once, it has to be into a top-performing product. So the raison d'etre of our options is really to make sure that we, we don't see any default member going into an underperforming fund. And we know, and you know, Alan, there's a very long tail of underperforming funds. There we is. We need to do better.
0: You know, nothing you do can actually prevent that, can it?
1: It can under our models. those The, the tail of underperforming funds would not be eligible for the default market for new job entrants going forward.
0: So perhaps we should just quickly go through the models. You've got assisted employee choice, assisted employer choice multi-criteria tender. I suppose the first two, that assisted choice is relatively self-explanatory to some extent. You've got regulatory intervention to provide shortlists for either employees or employers. Is that a um, an oversimplification?
1: They're very similar, those two models. So we're assisting either the employee or the employer to choose. There's two lists, in both of those models. The first is kind of best in show, where we get that competitive dynamic to compete to be you know, the top four to 10. We know with employees, based on behavioral science and behavioral economics, if you have more than 10 on the list, they're gonna struggle with the choice. And again, we're looking for feedback on, on how we've designed the models. But so you've got one shortlist for employees that are less engaged, And one short list for employers, and we heard from many small and medium-sized enterprise employers, Alan, that felt very uncomfortable, or they didn't didn't feel they had the capability to make that choice on behalf of their employers, employees, so we're making it easier for both of them. But then we've also got a longer list, so those those employers or those employees that think they can make a more informed choice, um, we've got a longer list, which I kind of describe as my super on steroids. So with MySuper at the moment, we know there's 110 MySuper products, but we know from APRA that a lot of those are underperforming funds. So we've basically lifted the high bar in an absolute sense with minimum standards, and that's the longer list.
0: With product accreditation standards.
1: That's exactly right, where we have a scale test that bites, where we have an ongoing assessment of investment performance. So if over time you're you're an underperformer, becoming a systemic underperformer over the medium term, you're off the list.
0: And if you're off the list, you'd have to close, wouldn't you? That'd be the end of you.
1: So if you come off the minimum standards list, APRA would need to then transfer your members to somebody else on the list.
0: You would automatically close in that case?
1: Yes, if you're off the minimum standards list.
0: Excellent. <laughs> Tell me about multi-criteria tender.
1: So the first two models are using an administrative means of identifying best in show and then an absolute quality list. The other two models are about using market mechanisms and getting the competitive dynamic right. The first one, the multi-criteria tender, is just what it says to be, where we've identified four or five criteria against which proposals, tender proposals, would be considered by an independent um, expert panel or or body that the government would establish. It's not too dissimilar. From the auction, the auction is a fee-based auction, um, but with lots of belts and braces, so you don't get inappropriate products where you don't have a race to the bottom. Um, so we would actually prescribe what would be a, the investment strategy for the default product under the auction.
0: Because cheap is not necessarily the best, not just in super, but in everything. Exactly,
1: exactly. So, And that was a concern that people raised with us in a pre draft report, Submissions and consultation. So we've designed it in a very careful way. We've we've looked at what what's worked well and what hasn't worked well internationally. We've kind of picked the eyes of of um, of different markets and different ways of doing these selections to try to come up with, I guess, four workable but well tested ways of injecting healthy competition into the default market.
0: What happens now? Will you at some stage come down and recommend one of those models?
1: This is where stage two is kind of a unique inquiry. It really is a top draw inquiry. So we're at the stage now where we're really wanting to get feedback from industry participants and and indeed from from young workers, their parents. We want to get feedback on what is workable and any other feedback or thoughts on on the the, the four models that we've identified. We will then get those post-draft report submissions. We've organised for something on our website where um, members or young workers might want to just make a comment about what hasn't worked well for them at the moment or what would be easy for them to make a choice and then we'll have public hearings in early May and then we'll finalise our report by August. But really, the report will be an input to Stage 3, Alan.
0: When will Stage 3 be finalised?
1: Stage 3 could start as early as 1 July this year. It really is up to the government in terms of providing us with the terms of reference. In their response to Murray, they said that we would be tasked sometime from 1 July onwards. And the 1 July this year is the magic date because that's when MySuper is fully implemented.
0: The MTAA is the car dealers industry super fund and for a while before the GFC it was famous. The MTAA super, and that stands for Motor Traders Association of Australia, used to be the best performing fund in the country because it had half its assets in unlisted infrastructure. Unfortunately the crisis prompted a lot of fund switching and people just taking their money out and that required more liquidity than MTAA Super was able to come up with. So things went south, horribly. Leanne took over as CEO in 2011 and John Brumby, former Premier of Victoria, became chairman. And since then, they've produced one of the most remarkable turnarounds that I've ever seen. MTAA is now the fund of the year. So I thought it might be a good idea to ask Leanne how she did it.
2: MTAA Super like many funds, was um, impacted by the, uh, the GFC back in 2008, 2009. We've always had a desire uh, to invest in um, unlisted assets. We believe um, that we believe in an illiquidity premium and it's a great diversifier for uh, the volatility in listed markets. Prior to the GFC, uh, we probably had an allocation of around about 48% to um, unlisted assets, including infrastructure and property and the like. Many of those assets, be, simply because of the size of the fund and the success of the fund earlier, was, probably still is a little bit today, it's very hard to find good quality assets in um, Australia.
0: I remember back before the GFC, MTAA had one of the best performances of all the super funds because of its unlisted assets.
2: You're absolutely right, Alan, we did. Um, And as I say, that success also led to a a lot of money coming into the fund. But, uh, you know, we have a GFC. We have some, um, as I say, significant assets overseas. There's currency implications, of course, with that. And we were impacted as a result of that. So um, if we fast forward uh, into 2011, also during that time, I should say, our chairman at the time, Dr. Alan Hawke, I had to leave, move on, he was unwell, and uh, we sought a new chair um and as as history will show, um we were very, very proud to be able to um have John Brumby join us. John and I then set about writing the ship, if I can put it that way, in terms of um, some governance changes, so we we made uh, uh, changes to our board. We in fact adopted the three by three by three model. So we uh, we, we always had one independent. Our chair has always been independent. Um, that's been there f- um, since the, the fund started. But we um, added another two independents to the process. So change that governance structure.
0: Over that period, you reduced the allocation to illiquid, unlisted investments from forty eight what down to thirty now. Was that a difficult process?
2: It wasn't necessarily a difficult process, but it's a process, obviously, that's going to take time. It involved, uh, obviously, um, it involves selling off some assets, and that has to be done appropriately so that you're not fire sailing um, anything and hurting uh, members' outcomes. So it's got to be a very considered and a very patient um, process so that you can still get good returns out of that.
0: Can you give us a bit of a picture of what your unlisted assets consist of at the moment? Because under Delaney, the the MTAA owned a lot of airports, those sort of infrastructure assets. Did you hang on to them?
2: We're still um, an investor in Sydney uh, Airport, but we converted through opportunity, um, a lot of that investment is now, it's, it's listed, so it's in the listed share space. But it's still a sizeable portion, so we include that, um, if you like, in our um, in our alternatives for for measurement purposes. Uh, otherwise, if it was part of our Australian equities portfolio, you, you'd, you'd skew your return there. So, so we're still a an investor in Sydney Airport. Um, we have Brisbane Airport. We've had Brisbane Airport for quite some time. Uh, we've got Flinders Ports in um, in South Australia which is also an excellent asset.
0: In terms of your portfolio generally, that's the unlisted part, around about 30%. What about the rest of your investments?
2: Clearly in the in the listed space, Australian equities and, um, and overseas equities with um, and, and, and cash are the usual sorts of things. So this is our, our MySuper option. So that portfolio is actually made up of... So we've got about 9% in cash... 3% Australian fixed interest, 6% overseas fixed interest, 245 of Australian equities, 275 of international equities. Um, and then, uh, as I say, our, um, our, over, uh, our unlisted uh, assets made up of infrastructure, property, alternatives credit and private equity.
0: So what's been your overall performance over the past year or two?
2: Last year, our, uh, my auto super option um, returned 5.53 uh, percent, which was uh, we, were, we were very pleased with that. That was a top quartile return. Interestingly, um, our newest option, which is uh, and uh, well it's actually called the income-focused option, was our best performer at, uh, I think it was 6.9 6.9 uh, percent.:
0: We're seeing some suggestions for change in superannuation now. Do you have any views about how the superannuation should change?
2: Well, there's certainly a lot of change going on, Alan, that's for for sure. Uh, Gosh, you know, I've I've been working in the industry for a long time and um, I think the amount of change that, uh, that has been going on and what we're going to continue to see has been quite unprecedented. Where do I think it should go? The change that we need to see really needs to bring about some stability. So superannuation, as we all know, is is a long-term investment. Um, that's why funds, and particularly industry funds like ours, have invested overseas, because you need to take the time with those um, alternative assets. They need to be given time to generate those returns. And what we're seeing, I guess, with change that's happening is that that long-term investment is now very much impacted by short-term outcomes. For example, investment choice. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all, um, and wouldn't wouldn't it be fantastic if if every Australian was completely and utterly engaged with their super and 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 making uh, well-informed decisions? The reality is, of course, that's that's not the case, um, and many 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 Australians are completely disengaged and go for a default product only. And I think part of that part of that inertia is really because, and particularly with young people, is because there has been constant change.
0: What would you think about the removal of default?
2: Philosophically, Alan, it would be terrific if we were in that, in that position, as I say, where people could make a well-informed decision and choose a fund because... They had looked at it and really decided that's where they need it, needed to go. So philosophically, wouldn't it be great if we didn't need to have defaults? People have to choose a bank to have their their, their salary uh, paid into, but there is an awful lot of choice out there at the moment um, in terms of number of, of funds. But if we come back to the fact that people aren't engaged, then a default model perhaps has to be there, one of the options is talking about one default. And to a certain extent, again, philosophically, you look at that and you go, well, that makes a lot of sense, given that many people have multiple accounts.
0: Employee Ownership Australia has created an index of companies that have a high degree of employee ownership, obviously with the aim of promoting it. But it turns out these companies outperform the main index pretty well, so they are definitely worth investing in. Angela Perry of Employee Ownership Australia fills me in on it.
3: The employee-owned companies outperformed their peers in the ASX 200 by 17% over a five-year period. But I think as interestingly as that, there are something called an environmental social factors that companies and investors look at, and effectively, they also outperformed well, three out of five of those factors as well.
0: What do you mean by that?
3: So, for example, equal opportunity was twice as likely in employee-owned companies rather than others. They had higher uh, safety ratings, greater job security, and better training and development opportunities
0: for employees. They were uh, sort of nicer companies, in, <laughs> if I <laughs> could put it that way, then, as well as being better performing. Absolutely. You better tell us what, how you defined... Employee-owned companies, what is it?
3: The methodology was that we looked at companies that offered employee ownership to all of their employees, not just their executive group, and then we made sure that those companies that did have employee ownership had at least 30% of their employees participating. So that's quite high in comparison to the marketplace, which is around 10%.
0: And how many of those did you find?
3: There were 52 out of the ASX 200,
0: And was that outperformance consistent over the five years?
3: It was. So what we did is when we um, showed it to a number of um, quite large investors, they asked us a couple of really interesting questions, which was ensuring that there was outperformance month on month. So what we did is we went back and recut the information and we checked month on month. And 54% of the companies in that group were outperforming on a month-by-month basis as well as over the five-year period.
0: So the A6200 is obviously dominated by a few companies such as the banks, big miners and so on. Was your index dominated by a few companies as well?
3: Interestingly enough, what we found when we looked at the companies in the index is across a broad range of sectors as well as a broad range of sizes. Clearly, the larger banks and some of the larger companies are in there, but there is also some of the small to medium companies that have a strong ethos of employee ownership.
0: I mean, obviously, your conclusion would be that employee ownership is good for a company, that that's something they should do.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And interesting enough, Alan, the, the investors that we spoke to whilst perhaps it wasn't on their agenda or radar to ask about this, indicated that they would be looking at this more formally when they're looking at companies and giving their results or looking at their results when it comes down to proxy season.
0: Are you thinking about producing an ETF so investors can invest in these companies?
3: We would like to, what we're trying to do is to get um, a mark which employee-owned companies can use in order to show that they are employee-owned in part of the index, so that investors are able to have that visibility very easily.
0: How would you recommend that a small investor go about finding out whether a company has employee-ownership plans or not? How is that disclosed?
3: The best way to go is to look into their annual report and see that they have a broad-based employee ownership plan for their employees. So that is publicly available and every single investor can look at that. The secondary element of that is trying to perhaps ask the company how, how large their participation rates are. So if 30% of their employees participate, you know that they're part of the index. So the first part is disclosed in their annual report. The second part is a question that would need to be asked of the company.
0: I mean, if you wanted to invest, create a portfolio of employee ownership companies, would you stick with the 30% or is there still outperformance at a lower level of participation?
3: I suspect there is. We haven't tested that formally the market rate or the market average is about 10% of employees participate. So you can see what we did was we used a really stretched target to ensure that the companies that we included in the index were champions. But um, at at all levels of employee ownership, you can see that there is an impact on employees. Having worked in the space for many years, um, and particularly in the administration side, the questions that you receive from employees, the engagement you get, and the research produced by Melbourne University also indicates that employee ownership at any level does have an impact on performance.
0: Europe, as we know, is having a big year of elections with extreme right-wingers polling pretty well, not to mention Brexit negotiations going on too. Get Wilders lost the Dutch election, so should we relax now? I asked Nick Devornak, European Portfolio Manager at Platinum Asset Management, and I also asked him what he's investing in now. The Netherlands was a very interesting test
4: case for France. I don't think there was ever real concern like you have in France and the Netherlands because um, Mr Wilders is... His policies are generally uh, broadly rejected across the political spectrum, and the Dutch political system requires coalitions. So the chances, even if he actually polled extremely well, of him forming a government were quite low. But in France, it's a presidential election. There will be one president, there will be a runoff, and so there's a much more uh, real risk of Marine Le Pen assuming the presidency. So the Dutch election showed us that despite uh, reasonably strong support from Mr Wilders, he wasn't able to come even close to to forming a government. And in fact, he polled worse than the polls in the lead up to the election suggested.
0: So where does that leave your expectations now for France? Do you think that Marine Le Pen will actually win or could win? Um,
4: So with France, the interesting thing is it's it's two rounds and Marine Le Pen is polling extremely well in the to to probably get the most votes in the first round this changed very recently but it's she's still neck and neck with uh, Mr Macron who is a, a much more centrist candidate um the, the question is not so much whether she'll win the first round, it's how she'll do in the second round, which is where her national front has typically come unstuck. And the reason for that is similar to what uh, we had with Mr. Wilders in the Netherlands, and that is that a large group of the population actually finds her policies extremely distasteful. So while support for her is growing, many people find her policies repulsive and they tend to band together against her in the second round when it's a two-horse race. So even the socialists and the conservatives will get their supporters to vote for one another rather than for Marine Le Pen. And
0: what about Germany?
4: Well, Germany is a bit of a different question. So in Germany, I don't think we're worried too much about populism because you see the economy in Germany is is far stronger than it is in many other parts of the world and indeed in Europe and the Eurozone. The, The question there is what the future holds for for Angela Merkel. Now, she has uh, played an extremely important role in European politics in the last 10 years, helping Europe hold together through both the GFC and the more recent sovereign crisis. Uh, and so the question is, does Europe actually lose a very strong, seasoned veteran leader who's actually really able to bring people together? Perhaps not in a warm and fuzzy sense, but in a very sort of hard-nosed, pragmatic sense, she's actually able to engineer solutions and uh, and get things done. And the concern is, if she leaves, well, then everyone sort of fragments and starts focusing on their own national problems and grows further and further apart.
0: So, um, obviously, there's there's clearly a, a cyclical upturn going on in Europe. Have been has been for a couple of years. Do you think? As an investor, that there's a risk that the upturn will be disrupted by politics this year?
4: Look, I mean, at this stage, it's unlikely. I mean, I think the the drivers of this upturn, are there's a few of them. One, it's external demand, and by that, uh, primarily China, but also the US economy is in good shape. But we're seeing a huge positive impulse coming through from China, where the economy is picking up. And then, of course, you know, to some extent, low oil prices, low food prices, and uh, loose monetary policy are, are working their way through the system. And we have seen some reforms. So we don't talk a lot about it in the press and in, in sort of investment discussions. But, you know, you've had labour market reform in France under, under President Hollande, and these were dismissed as too little, too late. But it's very real reform, and it's all about reducing this payroll tax wedge. So the cost of hiring someone is much higher than the wage they take home in the form of various things like pay taxes and so on, he's done a lot to reduce those. So what you're seeing in France for example is companies are starting to hire again. Unemployment is, is beginning to come down again and we're starting to see signs around Europe, that you're getting a bit of wage inflation here and there. Now, it's not very broad-based because places like Spain still have 19% unemployment, so you're not going to see wage growth. But in other places like Germany, where unemployment is in the 4% range, you are seeing a bit of wage pressure. So it's the coming together of a a number of factors, and I don't think you're going to see that derailed by politics unless an election goes horribly against
0: the consensus at the moment. In those circumstances of, you know, of a cyclical economic upturn, monetary policy still super loose mm-hmm. and uh, clearly markets are concerned about politics to some extent, however yeah. you, you reckon the chances are that the, the politics won't come unstuck, does that mean to you that Europe is a buy in general?
4: I mean, obviously, I manage European funds, so I have to buy Europe, but I think we're increasingly um, optimistic towards Europe, and we were quite optimistic to begin with for the better part of the last year. You know, when we were negative on Europe was after they introduced QE in early 2015, where we said, well, look, stocks are just too expensive. Um, Since then, we've been incrementally positive.
0: Where are valuations the best? Where do you think, which countries do you think look cheapest?
4: Look, it's difficult because it's a question of what you pay and what you get. The way we position the fund, we've got a large exposure to Germany and various sectors there. So I'm not saying we own everything in Germany, but from a bottom up, that's, that's how it comes out. We're very sort of bullish on Eastern Europe. And even in places like the UK, I mean, we tend to lean much more towards the exporters. But we are finding some value, there, and, and not just in the exporters, to be fair. We are finding some domestic value in the UK now as well.
0: When you say Eastern Europe, which countries are we talking about?
4: The big ones you'll know, excluding Poland. The Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary primarily. Um, but we're also seeing uh, signs of a reasonably strong economic rebound in Russia. And that's more just a case of things getting less bad and actually starting to improve a little bit against valuations being extremely beaten up. And which
0: sectors do you like the best in Europe?
4: The fund itself is skewed heavily towards financials, primarily banks. And again, you have to be careful because half of our bank positions are actually uh, Eastern European banks or banks which are primarily exposed to Eastern Europe. So when you think about that, what you're actually saying is, yes, we have a big exposure to banks. Half of that really is an exposure to Eastern Europe. And then the other half is an exposure to Western European banks. And uh, these European banks we like because we think the economies have been through a huge amount of pain. It's been a good old-fashioned recession where you've had a clean-out and a wash-out, and you're now starting on on a solid foundation and beginning to rebuild. For the Western European banks, we like them because we actually think, look, these things are cyclically beaten up, you've got negative interest rates, and as the economy improves in time, interest rates will go up and the banks will make more money. And secondly, we think that it's actually just a very cheap source of yield. So many of these banks have the potential to pay an 8% dividend. And if you think about it, the market over a very long period of time has given you 8% nominal. Well, many of these Western European banks are actually giving you 8% return real, Because remember, inflation is still very close to zero. And that's just the dividend yield. You know, they're not even paying out all their earnings yet. And there's still potential for these businesses to grow. So we think that's actually a very interesting combination. Outside of that, we are finding, you know, many European champions in places like consumer discretionary. So some in the automakers, but especially, for example, in luxury goods. So one of our larger positions is a company called Kering, which um, owns the brand Gucci, as well as the sports brand Pula and uh, Bottega Veneta, amongst others.
0: Would you say that you're better off investing in European banks at the moment than Australian banks?
4: I think that's absolutely the case. But again, you can't just buy any European bank.
0: Which ones do you like?
4: (laughs) Well it depends. So we we've got a whole host, as I mentioned, Eastern European banks. And just to give you a sense for why, I mean, we've we've written about this in our latest quarterly, but for example, if you look at places like Hungary, the economy is very similar to the Australian economy in the early nineties. And you know, if you remember Kerry Packer made a fortune, a small fortune buying a Westpac stock back in, in the early nineties. Um these banks have been through pretty much what something like Westpac went through in the early nineties. So for us we can't take you back in time to buy Australian banks in the nineties, but we can take you to Eastern European, European economies today and we can buy Eastern European banks, which are on similar valuations, have been through a, a similar period of cleaning up their balance sheets, and to an economy which has been through uh, a similar period of a reform and and b actually going through a, a tough recession, so you can um, set a firm foundation to proceed on. So, so that's one example. We own uh, a bank in Italy called uh, Mediobanker and another one called Intesa. And uh, there, really, the story is: look, you've got competitors that are hamstrung with bad. Everyone will tell you Italian banks have bad loans, and that's true, but they don't all. And the ones that don't are actually in extremely strong competitive position because they're competing against a whole bunch of banks that are handicapped by bad loans, and that puts them in a good position. They can pay a big dividend, um, they can cut costs, and they can still grow even where the economy is not in particularly good shape. So we think they're interesting. We own in ING. Uh, you'll know them through ING Direct in Australia, but you know that direct banking model. We think is probably the future and the way banking will go. And they've been tremendously successful in markets like Germany with this uh, ING Direct brand. And it's a pure direct bank. Bank. It's the third biggest deposit taker in in Germany. So you know, we we think they're actually in a, in a fairly strong position.
0: What about Deutsche Bank?
4: Well, we don't own Deutsche Bank, um, but we wrote about it uh, at the end of last year when they were going through their problems, and and we sort of felt out why we thought, you know, this bank would manage to to get through okay. Um, As it turns out, they've chosen to raise capital. They're not clear that they needed to, but I suspect they just wanted to accelerate things, get it it done and put their issues behind them. Whether you'd buy them now, I I don't know. I mean, the stock has has increased 70% in probably the last
0: six months. You missed out there. We certainly did, but
4: uh, it's a question of you know is this appropriate for our investors or not? and uh, you know people, when people give you their life savings, you have to respect that and and uh, you know the, the kind of companies you invest have to have to reflect that reality. They can't just be what you think will make the most money. you've got to balance off that risk risk and reward, and I think over time we've we've done okay, so hopefully our investors understand.
0: What about Greece? Have you got any money in Greece? Look, the answer is, is no,
4: but it's something we're looking at very closely at the moment. I mean, I, th- I think Greece has really slipped off the radar screen. You know, we've talked about various political problems in Europe. I mean, Greece has been through it all. Um, they are still part of the euro currency. They are still part of the European Union. They've had a, a recession which probably resembles the Great Depression of the 1930s. So this economy has really been through the ringer. Um, They've implemented many of the reforms that have been forced on them uh, by various other European nations. And I think that leaves them actually in a very interesting position going forward. Um, There's huge room for improvement. And like I say, people just aren't interested in Greece at the moment. And and that's something we pay attention to. When the market's not looking and there's a lot of change going on under the surface, um, that's, that's when it's interesting. That's when you can make really good money. And perversely, that's actually when the risks are
0: the lowest. Happy birthday Eric Clapton, master guitarist and blues guy, 72 today, and still playing magnificently. Here's one of my favourite Clapton songs, Old Love. the team and thanks to ism studios for the music i'll see you in your inbox on saturday morning